In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. As you read more and more of the Old Testament prophets, there's a risk that they'll start to mix together into this generic blend of judgment, wrath, and hopeful restoration. Retribution, repentance, rinse, repeat. But resisting the urge to tune out Jeremiah this morning, there's some details here that I think are helpful in understanding how sin functions in our lives, God's disposition towards us while we are in sin, and what repentance looks like. Our reading from Jeremiah begins with God's longing. I thought I would set you among my children and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful heritage of all the nations. And I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. Sometimes our mental picture of God is this caricature of an angry God looking for people to smite. It's more from Monty Python than it is from the Bible. Sometimes, in reaction, we overcorrect and we picture him not as emotionally angry, but as a cold, impartial judge, stoic and unemotional. But here in Jeremiah, Yahweh isn't dispassionate. He isn't unmoved or unfeeling. He is grieved by sin. He knew that unfaithfulness would lead Judah into disaster. He warned them. He wanted differently for his people. God's people in the Old Testament are constantly called to remember. Remember who God is and what he has done. To pass on the stories of God's faithfulness through the generations. But they had forgotten about God. Scripture doesn't give us details for the day-to-day life of the average Judean. We only get the extraordinary moments. Most of their days, though, just like ours, were probably uneventful. And yet, faithfulness to God, like faithfulness in a marriage, requires daily effort, ongoing commitment and dedication in ways both big and small throughout those ordinary days. Without that, over generations, God's people drifted away from him. It led them into unfaithfulness. Verse 21 describes that unfaithfulness as perverting their ways. In fact, they were unfaithful enough that at the beginning of Jeremiah 3, God describes metaphorically divorcing them as their coldness towards him had progressed into pursuing other lovers. One of the most helpful things I've learned about my own spiritual life in the last decade, and you've probably heard me mention it a few times here from the pulpit, it's that virtue and vice are habituated. They come from habits. Daily decisions and spiritual practices, or a lack thereof, slowly but surely draw us either towards or away from God. That isn't to say that every individual habit has to be treated with the weight of our souls on the line, but it is to say that our temptations are not likely to be what Jesus experienced in the desert, these pivotal moments where we have to choose good or evil. Instead, they most often happen gradually over time, like a proverbial frog in a boiling pot of water. Idolatry doesn't happen in a single moment. It's a siren's call that persistently entices us away from our bridegroom. Judah had been saved and drawn close by Yahweh countless times in her history. But over time, she began to drift away from her first love. And once you drift away, idolatry feels reasonable. For Judah, idolatry looked like forming alliances with Egypt and Assyria to secure political power instead of trusting God to take care of them. And once that happened, you might have the gradual incorporating of foreign gods into the common life. Gods who have idols that can be seen instead of this invisible God. Judah still had the temple, Jerusalem still had it, so 
why not allow for worship to take place on the hills, just in case? Why not consolidate? Why not hedge your bets? What does it feel like to be wrong? Well, it feels exactly like being right. It's finding out that you're wrong that's so distressing. It's why we avoid that revelation at all costs, by looking for sources that confirm what we already believe and surrounding ourselves with like-minded people to agree with us. Repentance requires us to be open to correction, open to rebuke, and when faced with the truth, to name things for what they are. Look at Judah's response to God's call in verses 22 and 23. Here we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Truly the hills are a delusion. And in verse 24, but from our youth the shameful thing has devoured all for which our ancestors had labored. Their deformation into idolatry wasn't just incorrect in a theological sense, as if all that mattered was just getting the correct answer to the question, who is the true God? Their idolatry led them into corrosive delusions. And God, through Jeremiah, invited them to give up that delusion, wake up to reality, to his love. Now, I want to pause here because this would actually be a natural moment to bring up current cultural and political issues. Despite my best efforts to remain nonpartisan in my preaching and public witness, I get the sense that my political sensibilities aren't exactly a secret. And so it probably wouldn't surprise you that I find what I just said to speak to problems of the broader church's unhealthy willingness to embrace conspiracy theories and to the hijacking of evangelicals as political pawns for those who know how to use just the right jargon to win our votes, support, and our money, and everything in between. And from what I've experienced in my years of preaching at All Souls, I think I'd be mostly commended for such a sermon. But there's a different kind of delusion that I think I suffer from as it relates to current events that perhaps some of you might need to wake up from as well. And that is instead of having a robust understanding of God's love for his people, which motivates his prophets to name sin, we've internalized that same caricature of the angry Old Testament God and wield it with zeal for social justice. That isn't to say that these issues aren't important or don't need to be spoken to, but how easy is it to point out a flaw in a sister or brother and feel smug and self-righteous? Instead of hearing God's longing for his people to be faithful, longing to show grace, we look at what we perceive to be sin among fellow Christians and speak with only law and wrath. As a practical matter, it can be an obsession that won't convince anyone to change. And as a spiritual matter, it lacks the humility to acknowledge that I too am capable of succumbing to a delusion. And it starts with a hatred for the other instead of love. I don't want to preach a sermon this morning that causes you to think about someone else's sin. Because if that's the case, we're missing the point. Now, I don't want to preach a sermon in which we despair over our own sin either. Because in the face of idolatry, God is certainly a jealous God, but his anger is never separated from his love, his longing for people to be faithful and for them to follow the ways that lead to life. And so, in Jeremiah 3.22, we read, Return, O faithless children, I will heal your faithlessness. God's jealousy isn't just about his own ego, as if he needed us to honor him to feel good about himself in the morning, but because giving in to the delusion eventually devours you. Unfaithfulness is unhealthy, and it undercuts what God has consistently wanted to do through his people. In Jeremiah 4, 1 and 2, God says that if Judah would return, then the nations shall be blessed by God, and that by God they shall boast. God's heart is on full display. He's eager to receive repentant people back, 
to heal those places where they have habituated faithlessness and then to bless the nations through them. And the call to repent is always a call for right now. Paul in 1 Corinthians speaks to the fact that there are no external conditions which keep God at bay. The verses we heard are a subset of a longer section in which Paul is giving instructions about marriage. See, the Corinthians faced a dilemma. What should they do when one member of a couple starts to follow Christ? Should the believer leave? The question on its face seems to make sense. How could you be faithful to Jesus while your spouse isn't following him? Wouldn't that be an obstacle to you fully committing to the way of the cross? Paul's answer about marriage, as well as all these other contexts that he spoke to this morning, Paul's answer is this, stick where you are. Not only can God work in your life despite your context, he might work through you to affect your context. Now, it isn't as if Paul doesn't understand the complexities of life or that there are no reasons to try and change your context. In fact, there are caveats to both of the examples that he brought up in the passage this morning. So while he encourages slaves to serve well in their context, almost every modern translation renders verse 21 as an encouragement to gain freedom from slavery, if at all possible. And we see that fleshed out more in his letter to Philemon. With regards to circumcision, Paul talks a big game this morning about how immaterial it is, it means nothing, and yet he insists that the Galatians don't get circumcised because for them it would mean misunderstanding the gospel. And elsewhere, he makes Titus undergo circumcision in order to be a better missionary to the Jewish people. These were both significant matters that had to be addressed, but Paul's point is that there are no external markers, no circumstances, no contexts in which God can't do his work, both in your life and through your life. Our status in Christ is the immovable truth around which all realities about ourselves revolve. It's why he was able to call a bunch of fishermen as his first disciples upon whom he would build his church. They're a bunch of nobodies with no social capital or access to the halls of power, whether that's political or spiritual. The church would be known for being built upon people who were less than in society, from sick, left out to die, to unwanted children. It was a slave who wrote out Paul's letter to the Romans, and then he sent it with a woman who would be its first reader and likely its first expository preacher. Neither had status in society and both were given privilege in the church. The way of Jesus invited in those whom the greater society had rejected or considered less than and in some cases cast out because there's no context, no status in which God cannot or will not make himself known or where he doesn't long to be known. That being said, there are no external barriers, but there can be and often are internal barriers to God's work in our lives. The invitation for the disciples to put down their nets and follow Jesus wasn't just an invitation to a road trip. Those first disciples had to give up everything, give up their lives as they knew them, their sense of self, of vocation. It echoes God's call to Abraham to leave his home country and go to what would eventually become the promised land for his descendants. Neither was just a call to relocation, but a call to open-handedly allow God to shape his people into what he wanted them to be, and to let go of the control of determining what that would become. We tend to believe we know what is good and what will be good for us. And in some cases that's true, but when God calls us, it's always a call to something better, rarely easier, but always better. 
This is why Jeremiah speaks to Judah about circumcising the foreskin of their hearts. God already commanded Israel to do this twice in Deuteronomy. So even in the law, filled with these external markers for God's people, those external markers needed to have an internal reality. We're simply called to inwardly mark ourselves as belonging to God. That's including our loves, our desires, our sense of self, our sense of vocation. Or as one of my favorite songs puts it, take myself and let it be ever only all for thee. And it's hard work. God calls Judah to swear as the Lord lives in truth and justice and uprightness. There is no hiding here. What is true must be laid bare. Rock bottoms, the facing of harsh reality, isn't just necessary in the recovery work for addicts. True repentance requires owning up to and facing our sin in its entirety without masking it or downplaying it, as difficult as it may be. It's a call to embrace painful truths. Later in Jeremiah, God will confront false prophets. They were the ones who say to the people what they want to hear while they're in exile, what makes the people feel good. The false prophet said that exile would be over soon and everything would be fine. No, God says through Jeremiah, exile won't be over soon. You're going to be in exile for years. In fact, you'll be in exile so long that you should look for the welfare of the people of Babylon because your exile will be long enough that for all intents and purposes, you are the people of Babylon. It's in that context that we get the oft-quoted verse Jeremiah 29:11 for I know the plans I have for you plans to prosper etc if we aren't willing to hear harsh truths if we aren't willing to face the reality of our sin individual and corporate the repentant people in Jeremiah confess the sins of themselves and their ancestors if we're not willing to face it we will miss the plans that God has for us to prosper we will always gravitate towards lies that make us feel good instead of truths that are hard to hear all of the stories in exile that we have of faithfulness, stories like that of Daniel, are ones of people who understood this is where I am living. And if Daniel had spent all of his time focused on returning to Jerusalem instead of serving God in Babylon, we would have had a very different kind of story. But instead, Daniel was faithful where he was, and God worked great things through him. Jeremiah writes, For thus says the Lord to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and do not sow among thorns. Fallow ground is where no crops have been sown for years, soil that has hardened and needs to be broken up before any seeds can be planted. But the thing about fallow ground is that because nothing has grown there, nothing has used up its resources, and it can often be nutrient-rich. It's soil that is ready for new growth. I think we sometimes think about repentance as starting from a step behind, that after we repent, we have to work double time to make up for lost ground. I think instead, repentance is a chance to take advantage of soil that is full of potential, ready to produce fruit if it's given the chance. Repentance is breaking up the fallow ground that is teeming with opportunity for God's abundant life to grow. It can be painful and toilsome, but it will yield the best crops. We read this morning from Mark's gospel that after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. The good news is that our repentance, our willingness to lay bare our sin, break up the fallow ground of our hearts, 
is what allows God to draw near and form us into people who live in the kingdom of God, the kingdom where it is on earth as it is in heaven. This is how God would fulfill his promise to Judah to restore his people. So may we find the psalmist's words this morning to be true for us. O Israel, trust in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all their sins. Amen.